Hi, this is Patrick Baird, co-host of Unknown Orbits Podcast. I'm here to tell you about my latest novel, The Nowhere Navy, a military science fiction novel set in the distant future. It's basically McHale's Navy in space. It's on Amazon.com. I hope you'll enjoy it. Stop the presses. Pull out the front page. Stand by for a replay. Yeah, it's those two guys from Milwaukee. Oh, those two guys from Milwaukee. Here we go again. It's those two guys from Milwaukee. Welcome to Unknown Orbits, the podcast in which two writers discuss everything science fiction from Gernsbach to Roddenberry. Welcome to episode 42 of Unknown Orbits, A Pale of Air by Fritz Leiber. I'm Patrick Baird. And I'm Steve Reitze. Pale of Air is a story about a future Earth, which has been through a terrible cataclysm. It's torn from its orbit by a rogue star passing through the solar system. And at the time of the story, it's been pulled all the way past Pluto, heading out of the solar system. As a result, the planet is completely frozen. The atmosphere of the Earth has settled into four frozen layers. Fortunately for humans, the top layer of the frozen surface is oxygen. Yeah, the layers are differentiated by type. Right, so there's a nitrogen layer, a hydrogen layer, and I forget what the other one is. Water? Is it like water ice? Yes, yes. Okay. Thus, Pale of Air. So Pale of Air, as the story starts, a young boy who's a part of a family of four that's survived somehow through this cataclysm is going outside of the family shelter to dig up some pails of frozen air. The idea being that you take the pails of frozen air back into the shelter, and as they melt, they fill the room with oxygen, allowing them to continue breathing. So as he's out on this frozen wasteland getting his pails of air, he sees a light in a building across the street. And the light is moving, and he thinks he sees the face of a girl, but he's not sure. So he takes his pails of air and goes back inside, tells his family what he saw, and his mother refused to believe him. His sister starts crying, and his father takes him back outside to show him where he saw the light. And of course, when they go back outside, there's no light to be seen. I do like how in the details of what happened, Liber goes into the weird effects of liquid helium and how electricity operates on a world that has lots of superconductive materials, because that is a way that he can throw doubt into what the boy thought he saw. Right. So yeah, it's very imaginative and evocative in creating this bizarre, frozen, dead earth, and somewhat clever in how the family manages to survive all of this. Basically, they build themselves a shelter that keeps the warmth in. They have a fire that is never allowed to go out, and they have the pails of air, and so forth and so on. That's really it on the story. It's a very mood-setting story. Evocative is a word to use, where there's some scenes in the boy's mind. He's imagining terrible things associated with this moving light that he saw, that maybe it's the souls of the dead coming back. And long story short, 
it turns out there's a happy ending that the moving lights are other human beings from another settlement nearby who also have survived and they are going to take the family with them and take them back to this settlement where they're rebuilding Earth society and technology. I think one of the things that makes the story really memorable is that it's a new idea. It's something that we haven't read about before. It's not one of a hundred spaceships going somewhere. That's why I would recommend this story to a reader, is that it's imaginative and believable. You have to buy the idea that you can have frozen oxygen, that you throw a chunk of frozen oxygen on the fire and it fills your room up with breathable air. The one thing he does that's very unrealistic is the idea of having their shelters called the nest, having it surrounded by hanging blankets and many, many layers, and somehow that's enough to kind of keep the atmosphere in. Yeah. However, we can forgive it a little bit because he points it out in the story, saying, well, it works. And Fritz Leiber, he was a science fiction writer. He wrote a significant amount of science fiction, but he's really more known as a fantasy writer. I'm sure he's like a lot of science fiction writers in the 1950s. Well, actually, he was writing in the 1940s already, I believe. He wasn't as concerned with the scientific accuracy as some other writers might be. Quick side question. At what point do you think science fiction had the greatest desire to get the science as accurate as possible? I would say to 1940s, during the reign of John W. Campbell at Astounding. I would have said early 50s. Maybe, but Galaxy came around in 1950. Fantasy and science fiction was right behind. So the two major competitors to Astounding came along in 1950. They had a lot of respect for the science. They just didn't have as much of it. They were more willing to do a story like this. And this is a Galaxy Magazine story, December 1951. To me, this is more typical of a Galaxy Magazine story than an Astounding story. Yeah, yeah. I could just see John W. Campbell scoffing at the idea of pails of oxygen and saying, I'm sorry, I can't accept this. This is ridiculous. You've changed my mind. I'll go with the late 40s. Galaxy and And fantasy. It's not a hard and fast thing because Astounding was still going strong in the 1950s. So they were publishing tons of hard science fiction. The market grew. That's what happened in the 50s. The market grew. So there's room for both. Galaxy and fantasy and science fiction had a lot more conceptual science fiction, which we discussed the difference of before. Any other thoughts on the story itself? I would agree that this is a really nice little story. I enjoyed it. And you empathized with the characters. For a simple idea, it's really well developed. Mm -hmm. I like it so much, I find it hard to analyze why it's a good story. Well, there isn't a lot to analyze, really. It's such a simple story. And the world building, it works out its world building very efficiently, explaining how the layers of the atmosphere froze and the history of what happened with the planet Earth and how they built their nest to survive and what they did to survive. It's just very economically done. Like I said, the part that's quite attractive is the four members of the family, you get to feel them as real human beings and you sympathize for their plight. So we're going to talk a little bit about Fritz Leiber. I'm very familiar with Fritz because, as I said, he was known for his fantasy. 
and in particular his fantasy series Fafred and the Grey Mauser, which first came out in the, I think, Unknown magazine? We talked previously about Unknown. I think he published their first stories in Unknown magazine in the 1940s. You're asking the wrong person. Okay, I'm pretty sure of that. So that's the series about a sort of a Viking-like barbarian and a small thief named Mauser who are thieves, basically, and they get into all kinds of adventures in a very Dunzanian fantasy land. Liber is also known for his book Conjure Wife, which is a horror story about a college professor who finds out that his wife is a witch and has been using her powers to advance his career. It's been adapted several times into a movie, most notably Burn Witch Burn in 1962, oh. a Hammer film. I didn't know that. That's a that's a pretty good adaptation. It's a quality movie. It was also adapted in 1944 and then also adapted in 1980. So three times. Was the 1944 one, I Married a Witch? No, that's a different... different. Uh, okay. Yeah. The 1944 was called Weird Woman. So he's known for that. He's known for the Fafford and Grey Mouser series. And he's been very influential in the fantasy circles. He was the person, supposedly, who coined the name sword and sorcery to describe a particular type of fantasy that involves low-stakes adventures, often with a little bit more sex and violence than your typical fantasy story, of which the Conan stories are the most well-known examples of that. So he did have some degree of success in science fiction. His novel The Wanderer, similarly to our story, tells the story of a wandering rogue planet that enters the solar system and creates havoc. That won the Hugo Award for Best Novel. When I saw the description of that, I put it on my list to read. I just purchased it. As doing the research for this show, that sounded very intriguing to me, so I just purchased a copy, and I'll be reading that shortly, and maybe we'll be adding that to our episode list at some point. He also, this is one that Steve and I have a personal connection to. He wrote the novelization of the movie Tarzan and the Lost City of Gold. Though I would like to point out that my connection to it is almost coincidental. Coincidental? Yes. I mentioned before, I lived in the country as a little kid. We moved to uh, Whitewater, Wisconsin, and I'm pretty sure that... Tarzan and the City of Gold was the first movie I saw in a theater. Ever. Really? And I didn't choose to see that movie that day. I chose to see any movie that day. Well, that's a hell of a first movie. For those of you who may not be familiar with it, it's a Tarzan movie from the 1960s where they tried to make Tarzan more like James Bond. So it's got a lot of James Bondish elements. The beginning of the movie, he steps off a plane in a three-piece suit, looking very James Bondy. Only he's got a lion and a chimpanzee with him, and uh, there's a lot of gadgets. I was gonna say they even give him a gadget or two. He's got a, a nasty supervillain who's trying to steal the gold from the poor uh, Mayan people, and it's a terrifically fun movie. It's a you know it's one of the better recent Tarzan movies. Steve and I both love that movie, so. Fritz Leiber. He wrote the novelization of that, and I've been searching for that on eBay. One of these days, I'm going to get my hands on it and read it. So, didn't you tell me that one of his stories, A Bad Day for Sales, was required reading? 
that it was part of the weekly reader program? Yeah, I absolutely remember reading it in probably junior high school. Do you remember the premise? Oh, absolutely. It has a little robot, think kind of a... um, R2-D2? Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. It has a little robot, think of kind of a R2-D2 analog, whose job is to go out and, and sell a product to people. And then a nuclear Armageddon happens. Wow. And the robot doesn't understand it. He's just trying to do his job. So he's trying to sell suckers to the firemen and, and things like that. It's a very short story. And I think it's kind of similar to something else we talked about recently, where the robot, might have been called Robbie even, is in a weird way a witness to this larger event. You see it from its perspective? Well, not 100%. Robbie is a little robot doing his job. Nuclear Armageddon comes, and he keeps trying to do it. It's kind of a sweet story in places, but it's also simple, brings up topics. It's perfect reading for like a middle school. That was my impression hearing about it. Is It sounded like a juvenile, definitely. So he had a very distinguished career. He had a long career. Unfortunately, for a good part of his career, he was a fairly severe alcoholic. Towards the end, he was living in poverty. His alcoholism accelerated after the death of his wife in 1969. And he later wrote a book, Our Lady of Darkness, which is about a writer who's an alcoholic after his wife dies. So definitely semi-autobiographical. A little bit leaving Las Vegas. Yeah. So, you know, sad life, but through three or four decades, he was a fairly significant writer in two different fields of writing. So all credit goes to Mr. Lieber. So do you have any other thoughts on the story? Why would you recommend it to a reader? I already said it's a unique situation. That alone makes it very memorable. It is a classic. It's been adapted several times into other things, including a radio show, which I think I'll be able to link to. And it's a good example of taking kind of a basic idea and just running with it, covering all the possibilities of it. Sort of like when Hal Clement writes a book about an adventure takes place on a planet with super high gravity. And then he goes down every possible consequence of this planet having high gravity during this adventure that these beings have to do. Am I reading too much into it by saying all of that? No, that that makes perfect sense to me. I admire the simplicity of the story and how thorough and how economically he flushed out that story. That's an inspiration to me. If I ever get around to trying to write some short stories, that's the type of story I think I would like to write. Something with a very simple, basic story that's just fleshed out perfectly. I did like how he needed an exposition dump. So he has the father telling the story, but instead of leaving it as one chunk, he's weaving in other things. Right. That's a good observation. That was really well done. All right. So we thought we'd also talk, since we're talking about major disasters, apocalyptic events. We thought we'd talk about settings for disaster stories in science fiction. 
or apocalyptic stories in science fiction. So you had some thoughts on how to frame some of these stories. What were those ideas? Well, a decision you have to make when you tell a story is when does the story start? Great point. And it's all too easy to, and you see this in college a lot, the stories start up, he woke up. Yeah, he woke up and suddenly he was turning into a cockroach. Yeah. So I had the thought you could stage your story before the disaster happens, during this disaster, or after the disaster. And I came up with some examples pretty quickly. In most disaster movies, we start out by seeing what ordinary life is, and then the disaster comes. But I was able to come up with some titles that pretty well isolated the stories to one of these three periods. Okay. Like before, a fairly recent movie with Nick Cage in it called Knowing, which... I don't think I've seen that one. I like 90% of it. Um, And I... There's just... The first ending, I hated, but the second ending was what you would expect, which was okay. This is the one where he's an astronomer and his child gets a letter that was written 50 years ago from a time capsule and he discovers it has encoded with it every major disaster that happened from 50 years ago to now, leaving like only three or four more, which allows him to prove the point and discover that the very last message says the entire world's going to end. And the movie ends with the end of the world. So it's 100% before. Sorry about that. (laughs) But if you're watching a Nick Cage movie, you're watching it mostly for Nick Cage. It's a movie called Last Night, 1998. It's a little hard to get, even getting them the way I get them, because there was a second movie called Last Night, in the same year. Uh-huh. The uh, same year, wow. Yes. One's Canadian, one's American. Huh. And that is about the last night before the end of the world, and it's kind of cool. Oh, I think I'm familiar. I don't think I've seen it, but it's like a vignettes of different people. Yeah, it's got like their... Sandra Oh in it, I think. Yeah, it's like a very indie movie. Yes. It's got all these different indie actors in it that there are different scenarios, what they're going through as they face the end of the world. I haven't seen it, but I'm familiar with it. And it ends the same way Knowing does. That's the end of the movie. Okay. So there I've identified something for this particular type of movie. The movie ends with the end of the world. Yes. So the story ends with the end of the world. Yeah. So it's everything up to that point. That's a pretty easy defining point. During? That's tougher because we always want to show what life was like before. But I did think of two movies take place during, definitely, Battle of Los Angeles. Not the best movie, but... Oh, it's okay. It starts during the alien invasion and it ends during the alien invasion. It doesn't stray away from the invasion at all. Edge of Tomorrow starts during the invasion. You could argue that the ending... Just slops over into after, but the way the movie's constructed, I say, fine, it is a movie about during. Right. And then after is really a movie about after effects. Um, Alas, Babylon, which is a book. I don't know if it was ever made into a movie. I don't think so. And then one that I know you like, which maybe you can speak to, On the Beach. Yeah. On the Beach is a favorite of mine. I read it in high school. I read the book. 
by Neville Shute, I believe is the name of the author. And then there's that adaptation, which I think is really good, with Gregory Peck and Anthony Perkins, where a U.S. submarine is ported in Australia, and Australia is the last place on Earth where fallout from an atomic war is going to arrive. So all the rest of the world has gone quiet, and Australia is the only place left. And the scientists predict, okay, in a, in a month, the fallout is going to reach us, and that's going to be the end. Like the government is handing out suicide pills. Yeah, they're giving out suicide pills for people who don't want to face the end. It's very bleak. It's very dour. But at the same time, it's a very humanity-affirming story because it's how the people face the end with dignity. Yeah. And there's a lot of that in the book. It's a terrific book and an equally terrific movie, in my opinion. It's a very quiet, I guess we're not supposed to use the term cozy catastrophe. I still don't know why. I don't know why either, but I'm not even sure if I want to know why. But it's a cozy to some degree because there's no scenes of mass dying and disaster. It's just very quiet. It's just a very quiet end of the world. And surprisingly, it's accurate. If something big like that were to happen in the Northern Hemisphere because of the way the winds are, it would take about two years for it to cross over to the southern. If I remember correctly, there was something about a latest generation of H-bombs that had strontium-90 in them or something like that, where there was some extra element that made it more fatal. Uh, If you're talking about a cobalt casing. Yeah, maybe that's what it was. That's like the doomsday weapon. Yeah, they were using cobalt casings, and that's what made the fallout so deadly. Highly recommended. One of the characters in that movie, I've been trying to remember the actor's name. He was a dancer in Hollywood. Oh, Fred Astaire. That's it. His ending was kind of fun. He was a race car driver. Yes. And he basically drove himself into a wall. No, no, no. He had a race, won the race. Everyone goes, yay. Oh, that's right. Right, right. And then he goes home into the garage and just sits in the car and lets the engine run until he exficiates. That's right. That's right. You know what I think of every time? Hmm. What about the guy who lost the race? He wanted <laughs> he wanted to win one last one, and he couldn't. Yeah, he just went home and just shot himself. <laughs> Took the suicide, government suicide pills. So that's a very good definition of the three settings for a disaster or a apocalyptic story. And they're each in their own way different because the before is a story of coming to terms with the inevitable. During is sort of just a battle movie. It's basically just a military story to some degree. And then after is rebuilding mankind, or in the case of On the Beach, not rebuilding mankind, but the death of mankind. Death with dignity. Yeah, death with dignity. So very distinct. I really like that differentiation. I think that's really helpful. I've always liked disaster movies, big ones. Oh, yeah. Even the really stupid ones, up to a point. Yeah. Moonfall, way too stupid. Insultingly stupid. And there's only about seven minutes of 2012 that I like to watch. Yeah. So, three recommendations for this episode. Pale of Air, Tarzan and the City of Gold, and On the Beach. You're absolutely right with those two recommendations of A Pale of Air and On the Beach. I thought you liked Tarzan in the City of Gold. Well, Come on. It, it is it is Don't a, be don't be ashamed. You're okay. It is a nice sentimental moment and admittedly 
Now, what year would I have seen that? Holy cow. Uh, 68, 69? No, no. I was in a small town. Well, oh, here's been, something. It could have been on a, a re-release, so it could have been any time. It was probably a matinee. Yeah. And here's something, by the way, for modern audiences. Back in the 70s, if you were in a small town, you would not get Star Wars right away. You would hear about everyone in the bigger cities getting to see it and enjoying it, and you wouldn't get it for like a month. Right. Because everything was printed on film, and it cost money. I assume in later years it well, became there all, cheaper. Well, there were only so many copies of the movie available, so it had to work its way throughout the country from town to town. And the smaller town you were in, the more scratches there were on the film. You also got these matinees, which sounds like what you went to, Yes, where it could have been anything. Your parents would drop you off, and they didn't care what the movie was. And I saw 100 rifles with... Raquel Welch and Jim Brown, and there was a rape scene or attempted rape scene in it. So it was not exactly, you know, for a theater full of little kids, it was kind of not appropriate. I don't know what the theater owners were thinking, but anyway. I think my first nudity was Logan's Run. And that's good nudity. Jenny Agator. Yeah. But as I was saying, so it was probably fall of 1974 when I saw Tarzan and the Lost City. So it would have been like eight years old at that point. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Some distribution house yeah. is still convincing theaters to run this every once in a while. And what has stuck with me all the time since is how the bad guy die. It really made an impression on me at the time. I don't remember how that goes. He is in the treasure room and he... Oh, no. He's suffocated by gold, right? Yeah, gold dust. Yeah, yeah. that is cool. All right, well, that's it for episode 43. Please tune in next week for another journey into the golden age of science fiction. I'm Patrick Baird. I'm Steve Reitzey. Keep watching the sky. That's all for today. Pat and I thank you for listening and invite you to come back for the next episode of Unknown Orbits. Two guys from Milwaukee.